I've heard no in every different way, in sales calls, in partnerships, in getting investors, in recruiting candidates. And I think it's super important to develop the like, no means not right now. And like, I'll, I'll go find somebody who does want to do this. And yeah, so I wrote a bit about even in the army, how being really bad at a lot of the physical tasks that are a key part of being in the army helped me overcome some of this perfectionism. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome everyone. This is Bethany Coates, CEO of Breakline. I am delighted to be here today with Roxanne Petraeus, CEO of Athena. Roxanne, thank you so much for being here with us. You bet. This is really fun. We're delighted to have you. And just as we get started here, will you tell us a little bit about your background, help our listeners understand who you are, where you come from? Yeah. So I got very excited when I heard about your organization because women transitioning into tech and veterans transitioning into tech is definitely something I'm super familiar with. My like background is I spent the first part of my career as an active duty army officer. So spent time uh, deployed to Afghanistan and then spent time in Cambodia and Mongolia and really enjoyed that experience and kind of that first chapter of my career as an officer getting to lead soldiers and getting to do all of the fun and not fun stuff associated with being in the army. And then I got out of the military and among other things, I uh, was at McKinsey for a year and then got really excited about this idea for a startup that's now Athena about um, something that I had experienced in the military at McKinsey, which is compliance training that felt super check the box and just felt like it really wasn't up to the task of tackling some issues that the military struggles with, that the private sector struggles with, such as sexual harassment, but then you know the broader suite of kind of ethics, inclusion, all of these sort of do the right thing types of training. And so I co-founded that company along with Ann Solmson, um, our CTO, uh, about three years ago. And so that, that kind of is the long and short of Army to McKinsey to tech. So Roxanne, the sort of a running pattern that I see with the veterans and military spouses that we work with is this undercurrent of humility. And so since you didn't mention it, I want to mention it, that oh. you also have degrees from Harvard and Oxford. So just, you know, an all around rock star is who we are chatting with today. Very and I'm so <laughs> excited to um, to get into Athena because obviously with, with the work that Breakline does, we see huge opportunities for this type of solution. And in particular, the U.S. Equal Opportunity Commission concluded that effective training cannot occur in a vacuum. It must be part yeah. of a holistic culture of non-harassment that starts at the top. And so I'd love for you to, to talk about Athena's approach to workplace training what distinguishes it from the status quo, the kind of so, the conventional solutions that that you noticed that you felt were, as you said, not up to the task? It's a great question because I, I feel like 
as an employee, when I thought of compliance training, it was just this thing that was there and we did it. And was it good? No, it wasn't supposed to be good. It was supposed to be just check the box. And in the army, we literally called it check the box training. And yeah, you cite the EEOC's report and it's a really fascinating one because it actually, when I read that part of it, reminds me of some a phrase I learned in the army that there are no bad units, only bad leaders. I think that's potentially a little extreme, but I, I really like the sentiment of it, which is essentially like leadership matters. Something that in the compliance community is really important is this idea of tone at the top. So if you have a CEO who maybe like, you know, gets in front of everyone at all hands and says like, yeah, yeah, compliance, do the right thing, but also make your numbers, make your sales quota and do any, by any means necessary. That CEO has just like set a really clear expectation that no matter what type of training is rolled out, that organization is, you know, not going to be focused on do the right thing in the broadest sense of the term. And so something we've thought a lot about is like, okay, so let's say you have, as is the case with most companies, a leadership team that's really bought into doing the right thing, because there's a ton of reasons to do it to include financial incentives. Like it's just incredibly costly to an organization to have issues of harassment, ethical violations, et cetera. So let's say you have a team that's a leadership team that's like, yep, we want to do the right thing. What are the tools you can equip them with to actually demonstrate that um, that commitment And so the training program that we built out really does something that doesn't seem like it should be revolutionary, but somehow it is, which is you take adult learning best practices and just apply them to compliance training. So for example, that training should be tailored to the organization, something else the EEOC says. That could look like, let's start with a message from your CEO in, you know, kicking off the training. If you have a silly Slack group that you use, that should be a variable that flows through training for a scenario. So someone posts something in the, you know, break line, silly stuff channel, all of those things, every company calls their employees something different. So that can be a variable that flows throughout training to make it look and feel like it was designed for you. Another key part of it is adults don't learn behavior change once a year. It sounds obvious when you say it, like if you were suddenly to say, I'm embarking on a new lifestyle change, whether it's exercising or whatever. And you say like, once a year, I will check in with my nutritionist. Like that's sort of absurd, but that's how traditional compliance training is done. Once a year, we will talk about doing the right thing. So we broke it up into five minute digestible bits and deliver them in the moments that matter. So for example, if you want to talk about how to be inclusive to veterans, let's send that five minute, three minute training bit right before veterans day. Cause that's like a really logical time to send it. If we're going to talk about allyship, let's send that right before pride month. Like all of these things, moments that matter, making it digestible and over time and making it really tailored to the industry is how we took this idea of like, let's make training that allows an organization to demonstrate that they're really taking these issues seriously and make that scalable. This is resonating with me so deeply and One of the reasons why it resonates with me is because Breakline as a solution for diversity hiring and diverse team building, one of the things that I noticed when I was building this company was the tendency for companies to spend a lot of money sponsoring an annual conference or something. (laughs) Like, you know, like a once a year consultant who comes in. But if it is not part of the day-to-day behavior and prioritization of the organization, it just, you can't build off of that. It's not in the flow of work. Exactly. Yeah. It feels like it's the day that we talk about doing the right thing and then every other day we go about our business. I think something else that was fascinating in that same report that kind of blew my mind when I first entered this field is that there's really no evidence to show that traditional forms of training change behavior. And there are some studies, including some from the military, that actually show a backlash 
So for example, mm-hmm. if you do kind of a very sterile, I remember in the army, the trainings actually felt like a joke. They weren't intended to be funny, but they were yeah. so cheesy. And yes. um, we used the phrase cringe or word cringe a lot that it ended up that the soldiers were just like, this is, you know, I'm going to make some really inappropriate jokes about this training. Mm-hmm. And there's research that shows that in that kind of once a year, very perfunctory, check the box sort of way, you see a backlash in both unconscious yeah. bias and sexual harassment yes. prevention training, where, for example, men after taking that training exhibit more unconscious gender bias than before. Something I even saw in my career where, for example, there will be a fear of uh, men who are mentoring women that somehow they're going to be kind of falsely accused. So I remember Mm. walking into an officer's office one day to do like some sort of annual performance review. And he said, hey, could you just keep the door open? And I had seen that my, you know, male peers had just gone through the same thing, except the door was closed. So of course, we wouldn't all hear their performance evaluations. Mm. And I kind of looked at him like, oh, that's weird. And he's like, sorry, you just never know. And I was like, what do you mean you just never know? Like, Mm -hmm. you just don't know that I'm trustworthy and that I'm not going to walk out of this office and suddenly. And, And so it was just like one of those examples of there is, there's a lot of fear in this space and it mm-hmm. uh, can manifest in ways that are counterproductive. So for example, yeah. then women not getting those mentorship opportunities. And so we really wanted to take the training and make it feel really usable, really approachable, give people vocabulary and things that they would actually use if they see some awkward or uncomfortable or inappropriate thing happen on a Zoom meeting that they might actually think, oh, I saw this in the training because it was really realistic. And now I know there are three different things I can do. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, so that's, that's sort of, how we see it play out in real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about that topic of fear. And of course, we we encounter that a lot as well in our work and how we can diffuse it so that people can get back into a space of problem solving. And, you know, and I think part of it is the ongoing training that you're talking about so that it isn't this massive once a year event that then you don't think about for the other 364 days, but it just becomes part of the conversation in a really regular way. And so because of the frequency, we sort of tone down the feeling that the stakes are really high. Have you thought about that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like you, I think that the kind of the, an unintended consequence of making all of these topics, whether they be inclusion or or harassment, like really capital S scary is that people are Mm. afraid to to wade into what can be like very productive conversations. This is on my mind because we're actually putting together some resources for kind of how to celebrate Veterans Day with with purpose and like intentionality mm. as a as a company. And I think that so if you had a really terrible once a year training, people might think like, ah, shoot, don't mention veterans because they have PTSD and everything is bad. And so then you're not going to have conversations with colleagues. And instead, like it's really about like what are thoughtful questions you can ask to engage someone in a conversation. That curiosity is great. It's just like, let's avoid some uh, kind of stereotyping and questions or things like that. And so we really wanted to arm people with not just what what it felt like I always received, which is like 10 things not to do. And they're all really Mm -hmm. scary. And there's a frowny faced lawyer and it's going to be bad. And instead, like kind of couple that with like 10 things you can do. Like do open a conversation this way. Do ask your colleague about you know, why they're celebrating this holiday. Like there's, there are really nice and thoughtful ways that you can approach all of those things. And mm-hmm. so just giving that productive instead of just the negative, I think has also been a real paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with all of that. And so before you started, Athena, you, you mentioned that you, you had a, 
a period of time at, at McKinsey and yeah. I'm a former McKinsey consultant too. I saw, yeah. <laughs> and, and I didn't stay long there and I'm happy to tell you more about why, but I'm curious. It's unusual, I think, for people to both want to be a consultant and and want to be an entrepreneur. And I tend to think that it's not the same person who gravitates to those two fields, partly yeah. because consulting is really about being an advisor and, yeah. and entrepreneurship is really about being in the ring and doing the thing. And it just tends to take two two different kinds of sensibilities. And I realize that I'm an entrepreneur, not an advisor, but I'm curious about like that stop for you. And if there was something that you realized about yourself along the way, as, as you were immersed in that world of consultants. Yeah, essentially exactly what you said. Mm -hmm. I would find that almost like I didn't want to be kind of a coach. I wanted to get in the ring and be like, Oh, you're like, let's do it this way. And it's like, okay, this isn't mine. Um, Mm -hmm. And I love building things. Even between leaving the army and McKinsey, I did a, um, I bootstrapped a startup. And like, I loved that and just taking something from zero to one. And I really like getting to call the shots and feeling like I have skin in the game and all of that. And I think consulting was actually a really nice experience for me coming from the military because there were a ton of things I didn't know. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's like a lot of vocab, right? Like I didn't know how businesses were organized. I didn't really know what the private sector like was. And uh, I think that when there's that, when you aren't familiar with something, it's easy to be very intimidated by it. And mm. so yeah, someone would say SAS or something. And I'm like, I don't know what SAS is. Yeah. And so I appreciated that McKinsey felt like I could either go to business school or I could go to McKinsey. And I was sort of done with my degrees. I didn't want to go to business school. And so consulting felt like a really nice way to familiarize me with the private sector. But yes, I, I completely agree that I, I liked ownership and doing something. And that is just like fundamentally not the job of a consultant. There's certainly mm-hmm. like overlap. And I think some of the things I learned were quite, are quite useful even now, like just in terms of problem solving and yeah. top down 80, 20, like all of that. But I am much happier in my seat now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just wonder, like sometimes most of the veterans, obviously who come to Breakline are interested in tech because that's where we, we really focus but every once in a while, we will we'll work with folks who are interested in consulting as well. Mm. And a, a part of me always gets a little sad because I just think that ve- like veterans and our, our military service members are so amazing at building. Like, yeah. I think that skill set that you all gain through that experience is an incredible skill set for entrepreneurship and all the ambiguous problem solving that that you grapple with all along the yeah. way, I think is fantastic. And so I hate the idea of our veterans being sort of sidelined into advisory roles. But I understand, Roxanne, I can't make everybody's choices for them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. Um, And I also think like getting that foot in the door, all of it makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I remember when I was thinking of leaving and someone was like, well, if you stay here for two more years, you can manage two people. And it was like, yeah, two people, like, (laughs) you know, like my org is 70 now. And so I also think that if you have experience in the military and commanding large organizations, like that's super useful in tech because a lot of people actually are like first time managers and all of that. So 
Yeah. Yes. Huge. And it was partly like this dynamic that I was thinking about. You conducted an interview with Hunter Walk and I was yeah. really intrigued by this conversation. And the, the purpose of the interview was in part to debrief and learn from a moment of rejection. And during the conversation, it was revealed that a primary reason why he declined to invest in Athena at first was his inability to see the translation from your military background to your role as a CEO. And obviously like with my experience I found that very surprising but but I'd love for I'd love for you to share and particularly perhaps for our veteran audience the skill set that you're leveraging all the time from your military service that has directly translated into your success as an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I was actually like super grateful that Hunter was willing to do that because you very rarely get to kind of learn from rejection. Like often it's just kind of like you get an email and you're like, what happens? And because Hunter has since bought up at each round and um, has been an incredible part of the team, I had this cool opportunity to be like, let's go back there and like, what happens? And yeah, part of it he shared is that I didn't have go-to-market experience, meaning I in tech hadn't done sales or marketing. And so, you know, he understandably thought that that's a pretty important skill set. And instead, I, you know, spent seven years in the army. And I understand like where he was coming from in that in the army, you don't sell anything. Like it just, you know, it's like not financial transactions. And so I think that there were parts of my military experience that have been super useful for me in building this company. I think I'm good at going through hard things. I'm good at staying calm in stressful situations. I'm good at culture and team building and all of that. But I think he is correct that like there's not a lot that you learn that's relevant to marketing or sales being in the military. However, I think where maybe he missed it is actually some perhaps where like gender intersects here, which is I had bootstrapped my first company. And so what that means is the only money that came in the door was money that I brought in and because we didn't fundraise. And so I think that experience, even though it was, you know, like a year and a half, two years, something like that, to me demonstrates that I had... Uh, and I always hate these terms, but the hustle, the like whatever of being able to sell to sell to people, to market, you know, and all of that. And so I think that often we all tend to use proxies in interviews. So like I'm looking for someone who's a marketer, therefore I'm gonna look for someone who did marketing versus I'm looking for a storyteller, I'm looking for, you know, whatever. And like what are those underlying traits I'm looking for? And does the person have those? And I think that unfortunately in startup world, when you're pitching a VC, you get 30 minutes, essentially, and they're making the decision in the first five. And and some of those heuristics or those proxies kind of just sticking and instead of, of kind of understanding, like, what am I really looking for? It's just so fascinating to, to hear you describe it that way, because I think it goes beyond just the decision to invest. Those same heuristics are used by hiring managers too, as they're building their teams. And at Breakland, we have a ton of empathy for that, right? Like everyone is time constrained. Everyone who we work with, time constrained, big goals, lots of pressure. They needed their teams yesterday. And so in that kind of high pressure environment, it's understandable that we would fall back on are the playbook that we're most familiar with. Known um, quantity. Known quantities. Yeah. Exactly. But then gosh, we we give up on what's possible, you know? Totally. And I'm th- I'm thinking about we just worked with Stripe, like this is a little story, this is a little example, and we were helping them build out a sales team. 
nobody was looking for a veteran to join the sales team, but we connected them with a veteran named Brian Panachone. He just finished his first six months and he brought in triple his quota. And it was such a cool moment for, for Stripe to say, this does not make any sense to us, but we'll try it. And to, to like realize the benefit of doing things a little differently. And I think about that all the time. Like the fact that venture capitalists, 2%, of those dollars go to women founded businesses, like the extraordinary opportunity cost, you know, that is going on in, in that sector. It's, it's wild to me, the, the opportunities that they're letting pass by because they're not willing to take an extra 10 minutes to understand who's in front of them. Yeah. And I think we have this um, great advisor, Frances Fry, and she drew a diagram in classic Harvard Business School like manner of like, you know, overlapping circles versus ones in which they over- overlap a little bit with the idea being when you don't have a totally homogenous team, you just get so much more coverage, right? So you might have mm-hmm. someone who's very technical, but then you might also have like a real culture builder or something like mm-hmm. that. And I think that in tech, like getting people who have experience managing yeah, hundred person org, like, you know, mm-hmm. in a stressful situation, like that's a really valuable addition to a team. And yeah, I totally see the challenge of like, I mean, I've been there like uh, rapidly hiring of like, I just want a known quantity. I want, I want someone who's going to hit the ground running on day one, but unfortunately that can, yeah, just like lead to a bunch of heuristics being inappropriately applied. And I think it takes really thoughtful, like we have this incredible VP of people, Melanie, who's really helped us flesh out our hiring program and make sure that we're intentional and not doing the like, ah, shoot, just get someone in the door. Oh, my buddy from wherever kind of thing that that does lead disproportionately to heuristics being used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Roxanne, you've written about the importance of embracing failure. We just talked about Hunter Walk turning you down in that first <laughs> conversation. Yeah. And you specifically addressed the gender disparity that exists by calling out, you said women aren't encouraged to fail since they're judged by their past experiences, whereas men are judged based on their potential. And I'd love for you to just unpack that statement for us a little bit. What what did you have in mind when you said that? Yeah. So kind of going back to the um, Hunter story and again, I love Hunter. <laughs> this is not. Um, I do too. Hunter. I mean, yeah. he's allowing <laughs> he's so many people to learn. Like that's fantastic totally. that he came back. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big fan. But like something I thought about afterwards is, well, that's really interesting because I actually didn't play up my first startup because mm. it was essentially a failure. I sold it to a local competitor. It wasn't a huge win. And so I thought, well, I don't really want to draw attention to that when I'm talking about my background. So I was kind of like, I'm in the army and McKinsey, here I am. And then I think about what is a really common trope among men entrepreneurs, which is like so-and-so failed at three different companies before this one, and they're hungry, and they've got chip on their shoulder. And I have since brought on this great um, angel investor. She's a CEO of a great startup. And I asked her once, uh, or she asked me, like, have you failed a company before? And I was like, oh, yeah, but I don't talk about it. And she's like, same. And you'll start to talk about it as you get a bit bigger, but women just like tend not to. They don't highlight this precisely because of all the research that demonstrates that they're being judged by past performance and not potential. And I think that's like really unfortunate in particular because for me, like overcoming a lot of my 
perfectionist tendencies in my 20s was a really important part of being willing to be an entrepreneur because like an entrepreneur, as you well know, is like you just deal with so many failures. It wasn't just Hunter who said no, right? Like it's like we've been, I've heard no in every different way in sales calls, in partnerships, in getting investors, in recruiting candidates. And I think it's super important to develop the like, no means not right now. And like, I'll, I'll go find somebody who does want to do this. And yeah, so I wrote a bit about even in the army, how being really bad at a lot of the physical tasks that are a key part of being in the army helped me overcome some of this perfectionism. I love that. I, I was just thinking about how sometimes we can tie ourselves up in knots with language. And I was thinking about a, a woman actually who was applying to join our team. And she said that she saw the phrase fast-paced environment on our website. And she was giving me feedback that she didn't think that that was inclusive of women. And I thought I was reflecting on it. And I, I thought it was a really interesting comment. And I found myself disagreeing with it, partly because I am a woman and I love being in a fast-paced environment. Yeah, And I don't know. I just, so I just started thinking about like this tendency that we're having right now in our society to say, like, we can use some words and not other words. And I sometimes worry, Roxanne, and I'm, I'm curious because of the business that you're building. I sometimes worry that within DEI, we get really focused on language and that becomes the goal instead of the behavior and instead of measurable outcomes. Yeah. And so I actually find myself, and, and this might be a shortcoming for me, but I'm just going to own it, <laughs> be upfront about it. I find myself getting sort of impatient with like tons of rules around discourse and language when all the behavior is actually what I'm interested in changing. And measurable outcomes are what I'm interested in driving. And I yeah. worry sometimes that we kind of think of like modifying language and and putting lots of guardrails around language. We we swap that in as the goal. And we say, hey, you know, now that we're not calling an environment fast paced, that means we we've made progress for women. I, I know that this the point I'm making is sort of squishy and that, that's because the the thought is still squishy in my own brain, but I find myself worrying about it. Just like that's not the end goal. It might be a piece of the of the process and I, I want to understand people's feelings yeah. about it. But I do worry that if we short circuit conversation by putting guardrails around the words that we choose, we won't ever get to the real work. And I wonder if there's an intersection with Athena too. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot in there, like going back to kind of the training we do, we really try to make sure people don't walk away terrified because I think if you're terrified, yeah. you're like not going to engage in a conversation. Yes, um, we exactly. have one scenario about, I think it's something like someone misgenders a colleague and you say like, okay, what do you do? You accidentally misgendered a colleague and, and kind of the guidance is around like, own it, apologize. And then the last part of it is like, move on, like, don't make it about you. It doesn't need to be this huge performative thing. Like it's like, and then we just all, we can all keep going because inclusion isn't supposed to be this kind of complicated gymnastics routine where if you make one yes. wrong move, you know, you like fall off the balance being kind of a thing. Yes. It really should be this dialogue about little F feedback. And, and so I think there's certainly something there 
our VP of people just put up an article in Fast Company about how to make JDs more inclusive. So it's funny you mentioned that because I think some of the words that she suggests removing are things like ninja or in, in part because they're um, kind of cultural appropriation and in part because they do kind of tend to have a gendered component. But I totally hear you that I think I wouldn't like I would identify myself as ambitious, even like um, cutthroat that I think can be like really negative. But I think like that's a, a term that gets applied to men entrepreneurs. And like, I think I know a lot of women who will like scale a wall to, to figure something out. And so like, you know, I, I wouldn't want to take those words away. And, and so I think I get I get really annoyed because when I hear some VCs talk, I know how little um, of their capital goes to women. But then when they write an article, they always use the she um, pronoun for a founder. And it's very mm-hmm. performative. And I'm like, if yes. every time you did that, you just wrote a check. Exactly. And instead you just said he, I'd be like equally happy. No more patience so. for this. Totally. Um, yeah. And so I think there's like absolutely a part of the performative that can be both cover up a lack of action or make people afraid. And I think I have like no answer here other than Mm -hmm. it's like really important in building a good culture to be able to have that feedback of like, Mm -hmm. Hey, you, I mean, I like that the person was willing to bring it up to you and say like, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I I think about this a lot. I'm a mom. Um, I had my son during, uh, while I was building Athena and Mm -hmm. I took a three week maternity leave, which I'm like not proud of. And is like not okay and also mm-hmm. is like absolutely what needed to happen for me to get mm-hmm. this business to where it is now. And I think mm-hmm. a lot about – and I, again, don't really have answers, more like sort of questions about when I hear dialogue about making sure that we do um, have companies where people can build families. I think that's incredibly important. And I would have been devastated if I like could not have built Athena, even if that meant mm-hmm. – you know, that I was like pumping on a sales call. Like, so uh, I'm with you that I have squishy, squishy thoughts here. Yeah. I I think the most important thing is, to me, the most important thing is the impact. And the impact should be measurable, you know, and it should be positive. (laughs) And so if whatever you're spending time and money on is not driving measurable change, you got to mix it up. And I mean, I getting totally preoccupied agree. with the performative stuff. I just, in the end, I just have no patience for it. We always say like, if you want a t-shirt, you know, go somewhere else. If you want yeah. a coffee mug, go somewhere else. If you yeah. want to do the hard work, come, come to Breakline and the payoff is worth it. I'm sure you all see that in your line of work too. I mean, it's even like, um, we just built the backstop in the training, right? So we say like training that's impactful. What does that mean? It means that we surface to every admin who uses our training, the data on their team. So Mm -hmm. they can see X percentage of your team was comfortable reporting Mm it an issue before training. And then that went up 20, 30%. So Mm -hmm. instead of just kind of like, yeah, the rhetoric, we've just um, believed in data and analytics and mm-hmm. surfacing those to the companies that, that use us. Because I think that, yeah, I totally agree that it should be measurable. And if we're afraid of our stats, that's like, that's not good. A hundred percent. Yeah. We have this mantra internally, all hunger, no fear. Because I just, I want to be able to look at the data. I want to be able to look at feedback and always find what there is to find to learn, you know, yeah. rather than like get into a defensive posture and try to pretend that it's it's not telling us the story that it's actually telling us. But you you just told an amazing story and I was identifying with it and you told it as an aside, but I want to pull it into center stage. 
you took a three month, a three week maternity yeah. leave with your yeah. baby. I took a two week maternity leave. So really <laughs> okay, similar yeah. when I was started. And I, and like at the time, Breakline was all women. And so I went to great lengths and my colleague was pregnant to say, this is not normal. And by the way, yeah. at some point I am going to take this maternity leave. It might be six years from now, yeah. um, but I'm going to do it. And I just want to shine a light on how badass that is. That's so <laughs> fucking ridiculous on some <laughs> level to be, to have a three week old baby nursing and you're building a startup that shorthand of like, will this person run through brick walls to get yeah. this company built? You know, I'm looking at and speaking with a woman who basically did something <laughs> 10 times harder than that, you know, yeah. like the, the <sighs> physical exhaustion, the sleep deprivation, just the caloric outtake from your body with nursing a baby at that time. It's just, it's an amazing feat. It's an unbelievable thing that you did. And you're, you're a woman and a veteran. So you're kind of like doubly unassuming and modest about this. And so I want to shine a light on it for you because it's an incredible choice that you made to, yeah. to really build this company. Well, yeah, thank you. And I mean, it just, it was like, we were kind of early days. We had a couple of key enterprise deals that were closing and it was just like, look, yeah. this is like what we need to do. But I think it's when I think about the characteristics that people are generally looking for in a founder mm -hmm. of like, you'll figure it out. You'll make it happen. You're scrappy. Totally. You work yes. hard. I'm sort of like, yes. I don't know. I was like writing blog posts at 2 AM. Cause that's when I was like pumping <laughs> totally. and whatever. And, um, yeah. And so, and I, I'm very clear to you that like, this was my choice and I want to be able to make it and I don't want judgment, right. nor do I expect that this is like uh, some standard that, that should be. But I think as a, yeah. as the co-founder of this company, I've got a lot of skin in the game and like, that's how it manifested. Yeah. So just so impressive. And again, I, I agree with you, not a choice that I would necessarily recommend and certainly wouldn't expect of everyone, but as an example of what it actually looks like to be so driven by what you're doing, that you're willing to juggle all of these really important things at once. I think it's very, very impressive. <laughs> so Athena, as we talked about, Athena offers diversity, equity, and inclusion training in, in this modern format. And I'd love for you to just Talk about why having a diverse workforce is so important. And, you know, and then your own company is diverse. And so I'd also love for you to talk about just your experience with leading a diverse team, what you've learned there. Totally. Yeah. So let's see, in terms of, well, maybe I should just want to clarify, in terms of the courses we offer, because we started with just sexual harassment prevention training, and then to your point, we have DEI, code of conduct, anti-bribery, a lot of the financial courses, et cetera. And in terms of like... <laughs> why we thought it it was important to build a diverse workforce. I think like even in thinking about Anne and I, a, a co-founding team, like I had different experiences than she did. She had built a tech team at, at a startup and I had this like kind of weird meandering generalist path. And we found that like complementarity of skills was super important. It, it just gave us, it brought a lot to the table. And I think that that's like when diversity, in my opinion, is talked about correctly, it's like, it should be in, it helps teams perform. It shouldn't be this like nice to have or this performative thing or whatever. It's just about like having a really effective team. And there's all these studies, they always seem to be McKinsey ones about that, um, that support that. But in terms of like how I uh, think about it, like I think about our senior exec team and I had recently pulled the stats. I think we have something like 40, 45% people of color and maybe 65 or so percent women. 
which, and I think for any of these things, it's like, that's not like, yay, we did it, check the box, move on. Um, but it's, it's um, something we've been intentional about. And I think it's, it's in the right, um, moving the right direction. And I think about meetings where we have people who dominate conversations. I would be one of them. We have people who are really methodical and like to sit back and kind of uh, think about something before they they open their mouths. We have all this different different types of diversity of experience, et cetera. And that often leads to like really productive conversations if we can figure out ways, um, good ways of working. So we've worked with an executive coach to make sure that we can figure out how do you balance those those different conversational styles? How do you bring out the best in people who might want to read something beforehand because uh, that's how they best process information? So I think it takes a certain amount of intentionality. One small example of what that can look like is we use user manuals at our company. So um, people, uh, everyone answers the same 10 questions. So it's things like, how do you best process feedback? How do you like to learn? Those kinds of things. And everyone just puts them in a, a folder. And whenever someone new joins, they can look at all their team members' user manuals to just sort of understand, oh, okay, this person likes feedback live. This really stresses this person out. Let's do it you know, the other way. And I think all of those little like intentional ways of working have meant that we don't just have like, okay, we've hired a diverse team, but we can also try to sort of get the best out of this team and, and set it up for success versus like, we just have this one size fits all. I don't care if you don't, you know, if you like pre-reads, um, we're not doing them. Like, you know, I think that that, that really doesn't set a team up for success. Yeah. That was really interesting to hear because I think about when we don't know you know, like what, what I think is really interesting about how you've chosen to lead is that you're asking the question. Yeah. And um, Frank Flynn is a professor at Stanford. And one, one of the most interesting insights that he came across, he studies corporate benefits. Mm. And he said the biggest and most expensive mistake that companies make is not asking. So yeah. like, maybe people don't care about the free gym. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like they would rather have food delivery or something, but flexible if you don't work ask, schedules. yeah, flexible work yeah. schedules, work from home. You know? Yeah. But if you don't ask, you don't, you don't know. And yeah. what I think is really interesting is that you all are not afraid to ask. And there is a lot of fear in asking. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, but I think when we don't ask, we also sacrifice the, the, all the, all the energy and the creativity and the ingenuity that can come from knowing and from engaging with our teammates the way that they'd really like to be engaged with. And then the other thing that happens is if you're working in an environment and you don't feel that you can communicate your needs and interests, gosh, you spend a lot of energy pretending to be somebody else yeah, or a lot of energy suppressing at least part of who you are because only a piece of you feels like it's acceptable to the environment that you're in. Yeah. So I think really cool that you all are demonstrating and asking for your employees to bring their whole selves to the table. Yeah. I think our just general perspective has been like people have thoughts, employees have thoughts, and you can either ask for them and learn from them or you can sort of like be afraid of them and then they will come out like some, you know, like, yeah. and so I think we've just sort of said like, we actually really want to hear it. We set up a bunch of different mechanisms from like consistent surveys, lots of different ways that people can approach myself, uh, Melanie, their managers. We have feedback Fridays, bilateral feedback between managers and direct reports every other Friday, just a bunch of things that I think of sort of as like safety valves for mm -hmm. hopefully catching issues. Because I think that, Maybe one of the smarter 
design choices we made early on is kind of assuming that everything is like a when, not an if. Like there will be issues at this company. There will be challenges. There will be unintentional slights. There will be like all sorts of anything that happens at a company will happen here. And so instead Mm -hmm. of putting our heads in the sand and saying like, "Ah, I don't want to know about it, like how can we really lean forward and just figure out like what are the ways that we can learn about it quickly, address it, et cetera. Yeah. And an undercurrent of what you just said is humility. Um, yeah. <laughs> the humility and just the recognition, you don't know everything. You know, totally. you certainly don't know what people haven't shared with you. And so just having the humility to ask the question, and you've talked about humility in leadership before, would love for you to share some thoughts on that. Yeah. I think it's like so freeing when, when you can just be like, I don't know the answer. And so I've, uh, perhaps because I actually don't have this background in tech, been really clear from early days, like, I don't know what I'm doing. I do a lot of research, talk to a lot of smart people, try to make my best guess, you know, and um, best decision at any given point, but I'm not an expert in all of these fields. And that really was an interesting moment when I got to start hiring very senior people. So I hired a chief revenue officer who's got an incredible background in go-to-market and a general counsel, for example. Um, and so, you know, as a, she was a regulator and she worked in tech and in the legal field. And so both of these people are like incredibly credentialed in their space. And I felt like it was so obvious that I am not credentialed in their space. You're like, I'm not a lawyer, nor have I, for example, scale, scaled a sales team. And so instead of trying to posture and, and feel like I needed to hide that from them, I sort of assumed like they know that, like they can go on my LinkedIn, like they understand what I do and don't know. But what I am really good at is asking questions, kind of thinking first principles, understanding. And so how can I really leverage and benefit from all of their incredible expertise while also not um, checking out? Like it's still my role as a leader to uh, manage, to expect the best and, and all of that. And I think that there, like my first job in the army was I was an engineer and my husband always laughs at me because like uh, he went to MIT and I did not. And I have no engineering skills, like really can't. I'm not handy, can't do anything. And, uh, but so it was a good training going into the army and being an engineer because the whole idea is like you're in charge of, for example, construction company and there's all these specific like tradespeople or people who know their equipment or whatever. And there's no expectation that the officer understands any one of those fields. But instead, it's like the officer's role to kind of orchestrate the whole um, operation and like do these sort of other um, leadership things. And I used to like, sort of think leadership is something everyone understands and it's not really a skill, it's a soft skill or, or whatever. And I think I've just started to appreciate more like, no, I don't have any of these particular areas of expertise, but I am a very good leader and that is an expertise in and of itself. And that's okay. I don't need to have like this, I don't know, like chip on my shoulder about that. I, I love that analogy and that example too. And for any of our veterans listening, like yet another really good example of why military experience can set you up so well to either found a company or to be part of an early team. Because that that leadership experience is unusual outside of the military that early in your career. So Roxanne, you and your team recently raised your Series B, $30 yeah. million, like a lot of money. How exciting. And congratulations to you all for that milestone. And would love to hear what's ahead for for your team and for Athena? Definitely. Yeah, we were really excited to do that in particular because as you alluded to earlier, not a lot of venture capital goes to all women founding teams. So this is kind of a cool, cool moment. So what's next for us is we're making massive product improvements that go live in like 
two days from when we're recording this that allow for this. I think it's really cool. It's this idea of moments that matter. So all of the examples I gave of like being able to send gifts and um, entertainment policy right before the holidays, send a something that's very time sensitive and important and contextual information to any group of employees at any time that that functionality will go live for all of our customers very soon. It was this big infrastructure project. And then we're continuing to invest in the product itself. I mentioned data and analytics. So right now we surface to admins who use Athena for their compliance training, data on what your employees think of the training. They can all rate it, what they're learning, uh, things like that. And I think that there's this whole like ability to unlock even more in terms of data and analytics that is quite helpful to our buyers because it's actually what the DOJ and regulators are looking for. But it's also really exciting from a culture perspective because I think like we were talking about asking employees how they're feeling about a change in policy, a change in benefits. You rolled out, you know, maybe some new program, like being able to get that real-time feedback is super powerful. And because we've built um, such trust with the employees who use our platform, we see that they're they're kind of um, giving us some of these insights right now on culture, because I think when compliance is done right, it really is about culture, trust between the employee and the company, et cetera. So investing in data and analytics and building out those capabilities through next year will be huge, as well as just making sure that more tech companies in particular know about us. We were really built early days by word of mouth, by Netflix telling someone else who told someone else. And so we're going to be spending a little bit more time and energy getting the the word out. So excited for you and your team, Roxanne. Roxanne Petraeus, CEO of Athena. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is really fun. Thank you. guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. 